0: I should, I'm all good, I'm all good, never knew I could, I'm all good, I'm all good. Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within, and like the Phoenix, enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a Phoenix Tale or a Phoenix Moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own Phoenix tale or your own Phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another Phoenix. Today's guest is Jerry Tofer, the co-founder of the nonprofit Kula for Karma and co-founder of the for-profit venture Be Still. Jerry recounts with great candor how her sobriety and AA helped her with her addiction. But more importantly, how getting sober became the catalyst to confront herself honestly, leading her on the path of service to others. Please welcome Jerry Tofer. Welcome, Jerry, to Phoenix Tales. I always start the conversation off by asking one question, and that question is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life?
1: I would say yes. It was identifying that I am an alcoholic and brought me into the rooms of AA, and that completely shifted
0: my life. Can you tell us what you mean by discover. So were you a social drinker? I think that this is a really interesting conversation to be having during COVID because I just saw a lot of people, including myself, just drinking a lot, you know, just from the stress of it and being at home all the time. So what did that look like for you? It's interesting because I always talk about, I think my social
1: anxiety was more progressive than my alcoholism. I didn't drink as a young person. I didn't drink in high school. I did other substances, but never in an addictive manner. College, never drank, young person. It was really when I had my first child move to the suburbs and everybody was drinking. And I think that's when my anxiety was off the charts. And so I really used alcohol to go out in social situations. That's when I really, you know, I had a blackout. My personality would change. My rock bottom was very, very high. But as they say in the rooms of AA, you know, you come in for the drinking and you stay for the thinking. And that really is what
0: shifted my entire being. So when you talk about blackouts, was that kind of a common occurrence for you when you drank so that you were one of those binge drinkers or did that progress over time?
1: Well, it progressed over time where, again, my anxiety was off the charts. And I found that having a drink before I would go out with another couple or I'd have to get up and give a presentation in front of a thousand people, it progressed over time I would say to myself I am not going to have a drink and I find myself in a liquor store on a Thursday I was just going to drink on the weekends and again I only had two or three blackouts where the next morning I'd wake up and I'd have to take a pulse on by calling other people to begin to did I say anything did I do anything like and I wouldn't actually say oh I had a blackout I would just try to like monitor how the evening unfolded. And again, that only happened twice. All my friends thought that I was, you know, the belle of the ball and a lot of fun. It was my husband who finally said, I can't do this anymore.
0: You talk about anxiety being sort of the root cause. And I think that there is this growing trend or it's been a trend or it's been something that happens where people do self-medicate whether it's through alcohol or through drugs. And there's usually an underlying mental illness or some mental health aspect. So when you talk about you would actually use alcohol to help deal with anxiety, you kind of mentioned that you would drink in the morning before a presentation. So how many years did this go on?
1: Well I wouldn't drink in the morning. But when I say presentation, it would be at a board meeting or it'd be at a gala. My gala. I didn't get to a point, and my first sponsor always says, "I wasn't there yet." And if I didn't come into the rooms of AA, this is a progressive disease, and I would have gotten there. I came out of the womb searching, always searching. It wasn't guru maktananda or yoga or going to, you know, India. It was the rooms of AA where I landed and really met my people and got the opportunity to excavate. Trauma, childhood trauma occurred, and I went out in the world fully armored. That warrior mentality worked until it didn't work.
0: So that's that aspect of people who are high-functioning. That's kind of what I imagine when you say that you came into the world armored. So when you talk about that moment where your husband just finally said, this is it, I can't do this anymore. Was that a moment where the light was shining down or it took you time to kind of process what he was saying and for you to get yourself into that room?
1: Yeah, I would say in that moment, there was no light. I was 38 years old and my whole life felt like I could not believe that I got to this place in my life. My husband was going to leave me and I identified in rooms of AA my fear around abandonment. It was a friend that brought me a brochure with 12 questions to identify if I was an alcoholic. I found myself in the basement of a church, you know, and I'm like, I cannot believe. And I didn't know anything about alcoholism or AA. And so I thought I was a bum. So I went to the Bowery Street in New York City because I thought that's where alcoholics go. And I remember going to a meeting in the Lower East Side. Nobody told my story. Nobody looked like me. And I just decided I'm gonna be disciplined and I'm going to approach this the way I do everything else in my life. And I stopped drinking for almost 15 years, but I was like muscling through. And then one day I said, wow, if I'm really an alcoholic, this was way too easy. I'm going to try this on. And so I started sneaking alcohol and I was doing a really good job of it until this insanity. Now I understand that alcohol is really a disease. It is a disease and I had no control. And for six months, I just started to get progressive where I became insane, hiding the bottles, bringing them down in the garbage cans at the end of the driveway. It was really taking over my life. And I was so alone because nobody knew except me that I was sneaking it until my business partner recognized, she didn't recognize me at an event and uh, needed to call me on it. And that uh, at 50 years old, I called 1-800-AA and had this kid from the Midwest for the first time say to me, how are you doing? And there's no one in my life that ever asked me how I'm doing.
0: Can we go back? So you're saying that basically you went to AA and for 15 years you didn't drink, but you're what I guess alcoholics would kind of call the dry alcoholic. You've stopped drinking, but you haven't confronted the behavior patterns or confronted the fact that this is actually an illness that you have to kind of manage. So during those 15 years, what changes did you make? Even though perhaps psychologically and emotionally you hadn't turned the corner truly.
1: I just did more of what I have done my entire life. I started running, you know, doing triathlons. I ran marathons. I built my business. I had, in that time, three kids. And you're just in life. You're just, and always felt like an outsider looking in the way I felt my whole life. But I had no awareness. My story would be, you know, if your father left you and took all the money and you became the parent at 17, I would tell my story and, and hold hostages and validate my shit it was just the process of what I did until I, you know, not even being aware of it, you know, picked up a drink I didn't even know what I was masking at that time until I stepped into the rooms of AA and realized how much resentment and fear. I always thought of myself as a very fearless person, but I went out in the world with a lot of fear, a lot of resentment, a lot of just childhood trauma that I never looked at and how that influenced my life. I, really had an opportunity to really excavate in a way that therapy and no other integrative resources for me, I exhausted all of those resources and still picked up.
0: So you basically used AA to kind of do this excavation work because you hadn't found any success with the traditional therapies or whatever was available to you. So as you were doing this work and you said you were 50, was it just kind of mind-blowing that you had been masking all this stuff and you had never really thought about it?
1: You know, it's interesting because I say suddenly is a whole lot of gradual. Oh, I like that. I'll be celebrating 10 years, God willing, on May 20th. Congratulations. Thank you. And I'm married 32 years. So for instance, I had no idea in my marriage... I was so armored. It took me 32 years to allow myself to be vulnerable in the marriage because I went out in the world always struggling with abandonment, not trusting men. I had financial insecurity in this marriage because, you know, I know the causation. My father took all our money. So I come from a strong woman and never really had any male influence in my life at all. So I had no idea how to navigate a husband. And so I constantly had my armor on. And it's recently that because of all the work that I've done, you know, I'm happy. I look at my husband as my greatest guru because I bumped up against him a lot. And it really inspired me, forced me to do the inner work you know, and the landscape is the same, but it's like, I see it through different eyes. Like he doesn't have to change, but it's like living life on life's terms. I approach it with many tools. I'm either moving towards sanity or moving towards chaos. And because of all the work I've done a lifetime, I hope it doesn't take anyone as long as it's taken me, you know, to get to 60. but. It's incredible how it's an inside job and I am not the same person I am today. I feel secure. I love myself and I feel like I belong everywhere because I take myself everywhere. And it doesn't mean those things don't still come up for me. Those are my first thoughts. You know, do you love me? Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? But the difference is. I don't act on that any longer. I have like an inner giggle now. Can you define that for us? I'm not mentally cutting myself any longer. I am really being kind and loving towards myself and knowing when to flip the cookie. It still comes up for me that I'm jealous or that I'm competitive or I'm not enough. And I now have the ability to pause. And look at it as an opportunity to lean in. There's the 11-step prayer, which is the St. Francis prayer. It's all about being that. You know, pick up the phone. You need it, then pick up the phone. You don't need to have your, my husband say, you know, like you did a good job. You know, let him know he's doing a good job. Just really flip it. And how proud I am of you. And check in with your intention while you're doing it. And that is the way I am choosing to live my life and have a lot of faith where another fear, I flip it, I go right into faith. And when you have that
0: awareness, you're able to just pause. The pause is an incredible tool. As you are doing this work of confronting the fact that you had very bad role models, as far as a father figure, men in your life, and the sense of fear of abandonment and all of that, I also know you have sons, so how is that raising sons for you
1: again, I live with a man, he's a physician and a now a businessman. I didn't quite know where I fit in when it comes to my kids. I'm talking about someone who's capable of doing everything from all our trips and colleges and SAT. so I had to do the work that I, knowing that if my only claim to fame in this lifetime is to connect on a very deep level, I'm very much into real talk versus small talk. And if that is the only thing, that is my only nugget in this lifetime, I recognize that no one does that better than me. No one has the ability to connect in that way my son is 30 and the other one is 24 and I have a daughter that's 27. And basically I trust they'll get that from me and what our relationship is about. And they're all into, you know, like excavating and getting healthy and Jacob bumped up against anxiety and he's a physician himself. And the fact that he was open enough to reach out and to go into seeing a psychiatrist and get the help he needed. I actually had my first boy man friend and now I have a lot of boy men friends which I've never had my whole life. So I get to hear men that are completely vulnerable and talk about their fear and anxiety and jealousy. They have to be vulnerable in order to stay sober. So that thread into my relationships with my husband and my boys, you know, to understand that they're also a mirror image of me experiencing the same qualities. They have such a beautiful blend of being honest and vulnerable and finding their voice and going out in the world and being incredible humans.
0: Did you notice the way you parented shifted during these past 10 years or your parenting style remained the same? You were always present for your children, perhaps neglecting other parts of your life, but that was one area where you did allow yourself that kind of focus.
1: What has changed, it's interesting because it's probably the same landscape, but seen through different eyes. What has changed is I don't operate out of fear. I operate as an observer. I have a daily practice. I go to AA meetings every single day. It's like going to, you know, temple. I get to hear a message, what I need to hear. I meditate every day. I work the program and I work my life Like a bandit, you know, AA comes before my children and my husband. And so I got to a place where I get to be the observer. And I'm actually now, I think that I'm not trying to fix it. I'm not trying to blame myself, my husband, without a program. I observe him, how he deals with anxiety and fear without tools. So I've been able to help really be in relationship with him around the children differently as well. I think that's the biggest thing is that I listen. My thing is I always had to be in solution. I always had to fix you. And that actually would make me feel better about myself until you didn't take my advice. And then I would feel shitty about myself. So it was like, I was so an ego. Now I just listen. I observe my thoughts around judgment,
0: around fear. I love watching their journey. Can you tell us which of the steps was the hardest for you? And that brought up probably the most amount of knowledge, self-awareness, having to confront your stuff, as you say. So which step was that for you? The first
1: one is the hardest, because you're powerless over alcohol, but you realize that you're powerless over people, places, and things. And to think that I was powerless is hard, because I always had to go out. You know, I had my boxing gloves on all the time. I felt too vulnerable. It just was so scary that I'd be powerless, and then if you're powerless and there needs to be a higher power, what is that? And I didn't believe in God. I had to come to believe. And what I love about AA is, you know, nobody tells you what to do. It was more about, do you have the willingness to believe that there is whatever? And okay, if it's a pencil, the guy with the beard, whatever, do you have a willingness to believe that there is a power greater than ourselves? It's interesting because when you ask that, the steps are so in order. Because when I had to come to the fourth step and really talk about my resentment, the brilliance is the last column of the fourth step is really looking at your peace. And that was like, whoa, you feel so vulnerable. And yet it's so empowering because if it's my peace, then I have the ability to change it without you having to say or do anything that makes me feel good about it. You know, I have the ability to shift and choose the way I want to show up.
0: So how long did that take, that true shift? And I'm just going to ask this question because I think that people who have addiction, it's a lifelong thing, right? It's not you stop drinking and you don't have those moments in the day where you're like, oh, you know, a drink would be amazing at this point, that it's something that is internal that you have to kind of face all the time. So What did that look like for you? And when you say that you felt empowered, which I love, because the show is all about empowering women to tell their stories and finding the meaning in their own lives, right? Like their lives are worth having been lived and is living. So what did that look like in that process of like owning it and saying, ah, I have accountability for some of this?
1: so funny you're bringing a process because I never really... (laughs) I never understood process. Now that I'm 60, I'm all about process because I never want to get there because getting there, meaning I'm underground, I'm no longer living. And when I'm in process, I am more present and I'm feeling like I'm elongating my life here because, you know, even though I'm 60, I feel like I'm 30. They also talk about the program. They say something like you're halfway there, you're only halfway there. and so. When you ask me that question, it's like when I first did, you know, 10 years ago with the steps, there was a tremendous release. It was so wonderful to be able to talk to someone who walked in my shoes and would sit there and shake and nod her head and get it because there's so many challenging, embarrassing, there's still such shame and stigma around, you know, and I just felt like a bad girl and I felt like I was a loser. It was hard for me when I first came in on so many levels. I didn't tell my children until I was five years into the program because I wanted to take the seat of the mommy and not have them worry or be upset. So there was a lot of energy around that. And so when you ask me that question, I look at it as like a lotus flower that is in the muck in the darkness and out of it comes this beautiful lotus flower I feel like this is a program and a life that just keeps on giving. And so I'm constantly in process, like literally 32 years married, and I just was able to be vulnerable with my husband. This is also a program that allows you to make amends. For me, some of those amends are living
0: amends. Can you give us an example of that? I've had plenty of friends in AA, so I understand the amends part. But what does that mean? What does that look like? The living amend
1: is around my sister-in-law. My thoughts, I was passive-aggressive. I would have all these negative thoughts, and I would speak unkindly about her to everyone that would
0: listen. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. But, you know, I think a lot of people can relate. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's a very human thing, right? When people would meet her, they'd be like, what?
1: This is how pathetically insecure. I was around mothering and being in the world. My amends with my sister-in-law, who I still have the same thought, you know, some of them have softened, some have gone away, but some of them still exist. It's just the way she shows up in the world. I called her up out of nowhere and just said to her, you know, you are an amazing sister-in-law. She always shows up. She is a great sister. She's a great aunt. I let her know and she looked at me like I had 17 heads and was so in gratitude. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Jerry. And so that to me is a living amends.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. So in the past 10 years, how did you shift your life in other ways? I'd be thinking about
1: the past. I would think about the future, just feeling incredibly vulnerable. Like, I just need to know. Like, I couldn't pick up the phone unless I was in a certain head. Either I was on or I was off. And until I was on and then going to say things that was going to rock your world, I wouldn't pick up the phone. I don't live that way anymore. I am a woman of integrity. I do the next right thing, even if it's uncomfortable. I do it anyway. I'm just more in flow. And it doesn't mean that all these things don't still happen or I don't get triggered. I just am so aware of it. And I have all the tools I need. I'm a much more private person. I don't need to tell everyone and be everyone's entertainment.
0: I think that I love and I'm so grateful for your honesty. I think a lot of the things that you are working on for yourself are things that many women face that sense of needing validation, the competitiveness, having to prove yourself to, I don't know who, but, you know, but everybody feels this pressure. So at 60, what do you envision for the next 10 years? Because I feel as though you've come to this point with so many great tools. So therefore, what does the next 10 years or what would the next 10 years look like for you?
1: First of all, I have to say that 60 is absolutely incredible.
0: Oh, I can't wait. It
1: is the culmination of my entire life. I am sitting at the head of the table now. My mother is no longer alive. I am the oldest person a lot of the times, like where I show up. And I look at that as being so incredibly grateful that I'm still working. I started a new business. I have a nonprofit, which I've founded and running for 16 years. There's so many young people. I could go to that place that I'm not enough. And I also know I'm staying in my lane and I am so thrilled that I still get an opportunity to be relevant and to learn and to grow and to be curious. I love, I'm found out I'm a lifelong learner. I love it. I am going, God willing, continue to do my marathons. I love bodybuilding. God willing, my body will continue to work. You know, we're going to age, but what doesn't ever have to age is your spirit. It takes a little bit more work because, you know, you're just like we're in life.
0: And now we have an opportunity to be in life in a very different way. That's a great place to end. So the last question is, if you could name one song that resonates with you or felt as though someone had written about you, what is the song and why?
1: I would say I love Pitbull. Wow. OK. But there's a song also, if you get the chance to dance, dance. And I'm forgetting Something Rhymes. I'm forgetting The artist. Um, but if you get the chance to dance, dance.
0: Get up and dance. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Juliana Kimbrant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Brian Pruitt. Like a dream, so let me never wake up I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud A little time, a little patience When I got tired of waiting Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud And they gon' ask me why I do it I'ma say this because We gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out and rust Pass behind me like a book bag Hanging down a coat rack Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, woulda If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix Tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.